Hello, and a warm welcome to the latest edition of Conversations in Drug Development, brought to you by the team at Boyd's. This podcast is for our fellow community of scientists and clinicians working in the wonderful world of cell and gene therapy and drug development. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Conversations in Drug Development. I'm Harriet Edwards, your podcast host for today, and I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by Dr. Eric Harder to discuss another regulatory topic. Hi, Eric. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you. It's very nice to be here figuratively, but I think more important, literally, I am actually recording (laughs) in the UK in the studio with you about five feet away. It's great. Absolutely. And I think it's a a really nice point to mention, actually. We do have an office um, for maybe those listeners that don't know in the States, and it's a a really good opportunity to have some of our our US colleagues over um, with us in the UK. So uh, yeah, many thanks for joining us. I'm really excited about today's episode. As I mentioned, we're going to talk about a regulatory topic again but today we're going to specifically talk about rare disease drug development which I know is something that is a a hot topic but also very personal to you Eric. Yeah very much so I've been lucky enough to work on a number of rare disease programs and I view this as just a very important subsector. It's sometimes maybe a little bit under the radar because it might not be as profitable, but I do think it's really important to find these cures for these potential unmet needs. And what's also really nice is I think what you often see is some involvement from stakeholders impacted directly. Some foundations are starting because maybe parents had children afflicted with the disease. Mm So where possible, I think it's, I've almost viewed as just a very altruistic form of drug development. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree with that. And I think having personally worked in in rare diseases as well, you get a different kind of reward, I think, from seeing success in in clinical development with these products. Yeah. And and the regulators, they're really interested as well. The FDA, I'll, I'll note briefly, they have offered some incentives for drug development in the rare disease space. So before we jump into the topic today, we should just, I guess, preface, we can't cover an entire um, clinical development program and and, um, talk about rare disease drug development as a whole without, you know, spending hours. And unfortunately, as much as we would both like to, we don't have hours today to do that. So we're going to focus specifically on the investigational phase of the life cycle development. And also in your geographical territory, we're going to focus on the US as well. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really good segue. I, I don't want to bore people with regulation. They're, <laughs> they're a bit dry. But uh, just very briefly, any clinical trial utilizing an investigational product is going to fall under the investigational new drug regulations in 21 CFR 312. But I talked about those incentives earlier. The Orphan Drug Act is codified in 21 CFR 316. And um, what the FDA is willing to do is provide some incentives, seven years of marketing exclusivity, but also potential waiver of the licensure fee, which can be north of $3 million right yeah, now. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And I guess that's a huge incentive to get people on board <clears throat> with developing rare diseases. So a, a massive thing to note. But of course, it's not the only difference between rare disease drug development and perhaps more prevalent diseases. So maybe we should touch briefly on that to begin with. 
Yeah, it's a great place to start. And I'm going to mirror what my colleague, Dr. Catherine Bowen, said on the previous iteration of the podcast talking about oncology. And she had sort of talked about the old versus new paradigm. And when it comes to clinical trial development in general, it's really easy, particularly with small molecules, to think it's a phase one, then Mm -hmm. your phase two proof of concept, your two big phase three pivotal studies, thousands of participants. That's just not the way it works in the rare disease development space. You're looking at maybe a fraction of the participants, and as such, the whole thing is going to be accelerated. Absolutely. And I guess there are new ways of looking at clinical development, not just for rare diseases, but also when we think about cell and gene therapies as well, and perhaps the more complicated products that we will touch on later. But thinking about rare diseases specifically, what would an accelerated clinical development program, what might that look like for a rare disease product? Sure, yeah. So in normal drug development, I noted, and this is actually even in ICH guidance, it's in FDA regulation that they view a phase one as really just a safety dose finding, possibly even in healthy human subjects, volunteers. When it comes to the rare disease space, you're just not going to see that. It's entirely possible that you're going to be going directly into a treatment population. I think it's just north of 70% of all rare diseases are tied to a genetic mutation. So you probably have some sort of metabolic process that it's just operating very differently than it would be in a healthy human subjects volunteer. And I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking about the concept of risk-benefit profile as it relates to the treatment population, but there are two sides of the coin, and we do have to think about healthy human subjects volunteers as well. Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of healthy volunteers, I mean, it's always been the gold standard, as we've mentioned, for traditional drug development to utilize healthy volunteers first. But in a rare disease that perhaps is um, inherently, you know, dependent on a genetic mutation. How beneficial actually is it for those healthy volunteers to be involved in such a study? It might be that there is only risk, not even any benefit at all to have that ratio and, and that perspective. So a real ethical consideration as well as a regulatory one. Yeah. And especially here at Boyd's, when we're working with a lot of cell and gene therapies, you don't want to take a persistent investigational product and give it to someone who's otherwise healthy. It's Mm -hmm. like you said, it's really only risk. There is no possibility of benefit. And even if that's not the case, it could be that the disease severity in the afflicted population is so bad that as such, the risk might be more tolerable to that population and the side effects would be very severe in a healthy population. So for these reasons, you'll often find your phase one maybe being more of this phase one, two hybrid Mm -hmm. directly into the treatment population where, yeah, you're probably doing some dose findings, some safety signals, but you're starting to look at that preliminary efficacy as well. And I guess, as you said, that really is so different to what we're typically used to labeling as a first in human trial, which is so usually dependent on just safety, really. But when we think about efficacy, why is that so important in a first in human trial for a rare disease product? Yeah, so I mentioned earlier, you're just not going to have the numbers. It's entirely possible to have tens, maybe hundreds of participants who are ultimately going to comprise your integrated summaries of safety and efficacy. And especially when we're talking about persistent therapies, this is likely going to be a one-time administration. And so I mention all this because in phase one, again, you are looking at safety, but 
particularly where you might have an efficacy endpoint that's not very well understood. It might be unvalidated. Maybe you have some signals from like a natural history study mm -hmm. or from a relevant animal disease model. But the sponsors are really going to be trying to thread a needle here because they are hoping that the endpoint they've selected, it's going to be clinically meaningful such that the first participant in is going to be valuable in a future integrated summary of efficacy. Because again, the hope here is that you're going to be able to get something actionable from everybody in your study. But again, in phase one, you're simultaneously trying to say, yes, our endpoint is in fact going to work. It's mm -hmm. going to be clinically meaningful. It's going to be relevant for our future studies, but you just don't know that. And there's always a degree of uncertainty and um, I, I guess uh, going into the unknown with drug development when you go into that first clinical trial, regardless of what it is, whether it's something that's well established, whether there's a, it's a small molecule or, or a biologic or whether we move into something more complicated and then we, you know, look at gene therapies, advanced therapies, personalized medicines, all of that good stuff. And then we throw in rare diseases on top of it. It makes it, I guess, many different unknowns to try and balance. So when we're talking about endpoints and, and not having potentially validated endpoints, it makes it a really tricky uh, job for the developer and the regulator as well, actually, in terms of how they evaluate the data that they're being given that comes out of these clinical trials and, and how useful it actually is. So a really tough job. And I think that's probably something that's worth mentioning is the regulators are aware of this. They know rare disease development is tricky and they are trying to offer incentives to get people on board and, and develop incredibly important treatments to, to save people's lives. And there is, I guess, a good example where we're talking about endpoints of that in the new pilot that has been recently released by FDA. So the rare disease endpoint advancement pilot, or the RDEA for short, is very snappy. <laughs> and that's really there to support developers in terms of navigating the, the use of the unvalidated endpoints. So a real good step forward, I think, from the FDA in terms of helping developers navigate these challenges. Yeah, and I think the important part here, and, and you've kind of speak to the subtext of this, is that it's a collaboration. The FDA are not the regulatory police. They're looking <laughs> as a partnership. They are as interested in advancing public health as the sponsors are. And so really just being able to have these critical types of interactions, we'll detail a few later. Uh, but the RDEA program especially, this is a very nice hat tip to the rare diseases. And this was actually born out of the PDUFA-7, the Prescription Drug User Fee mm -hmm. Act. This gets reauthorized by our Congress every five years. And I think this is something that is really going to help sponsors moving forward where they have an unvalidated endpoint. They have the ability to have up to four additional meetings with relevant FDA subject matter experts just specifically to talk about these endpoints and hopefully get them validated. So very critical meetings. Absolutely. And I think saying that there's up to four meetings there just for this specific topic is, you know, that's a, a real good sign that the FDA are taking this seriously and, and really want to collaborate and help developers navigate these challenges because without having good first in human data from the limited treatment population that we do have to pull from in rare diseases, you know, it makes it really hard to move forward into later phases of development. So uh, a really good sign, I think. But we should also mention, I guess, not just the initiatives. I know we'll touch on those a little bit later 
later, but there is a really good overarching draft guidance available for rare diseases as well from FDA. And that was released in uh, 2019, I think. So um, again, another show of support, I think, from the regulator for developers navigating the challenges in rare disease development. Yeah, that is a really important guidance. And a lot of the times you'll get into some of the early phase meetings with FDA and you'll see a lot of these thoughts, perhaps not verbatim, but sort of borne out. So there are some potential things that you can anticipate being trouble spots. And a couple of good examples, I would say, is the concept of the inability to randomize a trial Mm. and ability to control a trial. Again, I feel like a broken record here, but it's just (laughs) not the same as in normal drug lifecycle development. And I guess for those people that maybe aren't working in rare disease development, just yet, um, although I'm sure we can't get away from it uh, in the future. Um, what would be different ar- around randomization and control? How is that different for rare diseases versus uh, prevalent disease development? Sure. And this is actually, again, directly from the regulations, this time Part 314 of Title 21, where they talk about the concept of an adequate and well-controlled clinical trial. And I think FDA is really bound by this. They're Mm -hmm. bound by the guidance that they promulgate. And I don't think it's that easy to just sort of go out on that limb in like a pre-IND meeting and say, yes, you can do an open-label study, or yes, you can use a non-placebo-controlled trial. But that's going to wind up being the case in a lot of these rare disease development programs. Some reasons are the fact that there just aren't enough participants to be able to do a randomized controlled trial with two arms. But also you have to get into the ethical considerations of it as well. A lot of these diseases are really deleterious. Oftentimes they began really early on in a pediatric population. And so you start to think about some of the types of controlling mechanisms and the ethicality of it. Can you do a placebo arm if there is no standard of care while these patients are worsening in real time? Absolutely. Or can you do a really long run-in program to your clinical mm-hmm. trial? I just don't think that that's something that is really going to be terribly ethical. Completely agree. And although there's always ethical considerations across drug development, I think it's even more apparent here in the rare disease space when you say more often than not rare diseases are life-threatening, debilitating. They often affect children as well. So there's a huge ethical consideration about withholding treatment potentially from a child that's suffering. And um, yeah, it's a huge job to navigate. But there must be other acceptable mechanisms to to navigate these hurdles and get away from the need for a comparator arm. Is there anything that you can maybe give us insights on? Yeah, and it's interesting. So you'll get into these very important early meetings with the FDA. And in my experience, they'll spend up to two pages of comments saying absolutely why you cannot do this (laughs) and then say a sentence, but... If you think it might not work out, just so they justify give you this. The out. <laughs> exactly. Um, but but in absence of that, we have seen the ability to run pivotal open label trials. Most recently was uh, Vertex and CRISPR Therapeutics. And a, a landmark um, conditional marketing authorization, I guess, for um, the first genome edited therapy has been authorized earlier this month. Actually, when we're recording this, November 2023. We have a a treatment now, a genome-edited CRISPR-Cas9 treatment for sickle cell disease. And I think that just shows what is now possible in terms of changing uh, uh, clinical trial design and and making things more pragmatic and flexible and supportive. And there is, uh, I'm sure, more to come from these types of clinical trial designs. 
Yeah, and the FDA advisory committee for this, they didn't even go into the efficacy, but because it was so overwhelmingly efficacious that they only focused on some of the uh, safety reporting, the long-term follow-up. So I do think that the FDA is willing to, and and the independent advisors and the advisory committees, they're willing to look at these types of trials. But one other one that I would like to mention is the concept of a natural history study. And I've been fortunate enough to work with the scientists at the National Institutes of Health. And there, I think some of the world's experts at putting together these types of trials, really understanding the diseases, the relevant biomarkers um, as early on as in a pediatric population. And so when you have the ability to have that type of trial and gain that information, you may have effectively already built out a control arm. Mm. And so when you have that ability to go to the regulators with that data, what they're going to be looking at is the natural history study sort of side by side with your proposed first and human study are the measures the same? Are the time points the same? We recognize that you're not going to be doing a lot of the safety data in a natural history study because it wouldn't be relevant, but they just want to be able to have that apples to apples comparison, hopefully from a prospectively designed concurrent trial, but possibly with sort of that retrospective chart control. And sometimes even some of the patients from the natural history study will wind up joining the first in human clinical trials. Yeah, and I've definitely seen that in the, the projects that I've been involved in, actually. So it's it's quite a nice way of getting people on board and, and recruiting your treatment population as well. I think the natural history study is kind of going to become more and more important for rare disease development. I don't know whether you agree, but I think it's something that is definitely a way of um, giving you some information to your treatment population before you then obviously expose them to the potential treatment. And I think FDA are obviously thinking along these lines as well, given that there's, again, another draft guidance. They, they really seem to be trying to push out as much support as possible for developers of, of drugs to treat rare disease. So there's a, a draft guidance that was, again, released in 2019 that's available specifically for natural history studies. So I think it's a, a really important sign from FDA. Yeah, for sure. And I know they've also, I think in around the past 10 years, been funding some of these natural history studies with their grant program as well. Yeah, and we've been lucky enough at Boyd's actually to to be involved in some of the, the grant program work. And I think it's, um, you know, there is a significant amount of money that is being, you know, left on the table there for developers of treatments for rare diseases. And again, just another initiative to help show how important it is to get involved in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And we're talking about rare diseases here. And I know we've mentioned, we've talked about Vertex and uh, a CRISPR-Cas9 edited technology. And we can't get away from the fact that many of these rare disease treatments are, by um, very nature, they are going to be salangene therapies. They are treating genetic mutations, but they're not obviously all um, salangene therapies. However, we're talking about uh, salangene therapy specifically here. What are any specific things to keep in mind when we're looking at treatments for rare diseases that actually are um, sal or gene therapies? Yeah, and there's sort of the pragmatic perspective. We talked about the accelerated paradigm of rare diseases. We talked about the limited populations. But when I've gone to conferences and industry stakeholder events, on their end, where that's borne out is they're starting to think about what does a post-licensure population look like if you have a cell and gene therapy, again, a persistent, mm-hmm. likely one-time therapy. Um, and then also, these are challenging investigational products to manufacture. <laughs> so 
of are you going to build your own GMP compliant manufacturing facility? Are you going to use a contract manufacturer? And then what does an off-ramp look like? These are some of the logistical considerations I think companies are seeing behind the scenes. It might not be borne out in something like a regulatory document, but there are these pragmatic things that we need to think about. Yeah, and although they're not specific to rare disease development, they are specific to cell and gene therapies. I guess the issues become more apparent and more exacerbated when you think about the fact that you're developing treatments for rare diseases because there is that small treatment population and um, in terms of commercial aspects it's um it's it's a lot more to think about when you're navigating those cmc and clinical challenges actually of using a salon gene therapy so another one to watch there and i guess that's a, a point actually there will be additional clinical considerations for salon gene therapies as well yeah, I think a lot of these points could be their very own podcast. Yes, I think indeed. We, you know that we are time bound here. But uh, the other thing that I've come across a lot within the manufacturing is just the concept of the potency assay in particular. This is something that you don't typically quantitate and validate before mm-hmm. your first in human trial. It's usually something like a matrix approach, maybe a couple of qualitative measures you're still validating. In Again, in normal life cycle development, this would be before your pivotal phase three study. But now you need to think about developing that definitely before your phase two, but then also thinking about it's a cell and gene therapy. The manufacturing process is probably going to change while you're, <laughs> while you're you know, between your preclinical, your multiple clinical trials. And so retaining some of your samples for each change, making sure that you have the reference material so that you can ensure that your potency assay has been relevant for, for each of these lots. And then even just the number of lots that you have to make for each trial, you need to see the ability to get the same outputs each time. Yeah, absolutely. And many of these trials, I guess, will be essentially personalised medicines. Many things will be manufactured to order per patient because of the the naturally small patient population that we have to treat during the clinical trial and perhaps the gaps between um, patient enrolment and things like that. So when you then add in the fact that you're dealing with complex cell and gene therapy manufacturing challenges as well, you can see why we need to have the incentives that we do to support rare disease um, developers. Yeah, you're definitely walking a tightrope from a thousand feet up. (laughs) Absolutely. And I guess, as you said, we could talk about the the regulations, the legislation um, and all of the, you know, the paperwork that we deal with every day when we think about rare disease development. But at the end of the day, as you said, right at the beginning of the podcast, we're really thinking about the patient. And um, that's what makes rare disease development very different, I think. Are there any sort of um, points that you can maybe mention on uh, patient advocacy or patient engagement for development of rare diseases? I think that these are great stakeholders get involved as early as possible. They're really going to be able to sort of give you that how-to map behind what their daily lives look like as caretakers and what are some of the challenges they're facing with. They're also really good informal sounding boards when we talk about something like a randomized controlled study utilizing a placebo to say, for example, if it's in a pediatric population, would we let our child enter that study? And that can really arm investigators wanting to go in front of the FDA, have that discussion. And I've even seen some of these stakeholders directly on the calls. I think they just add a human element that it really is 
a nice touch in an otherwise sponsor and FDA dual relationship. Mm. And, and you mentioned pediatrics there, and I'd like to touch back on that because as we said earlier in the podcast, many of these treatments for rare diseases, they do they are genetically inherited, they do affect many children. Um, and that's where we're trying to, I guess, treat the disease as early as possible. So are there any thoughts that you potentially have on on this subset of rare diseases and um, particularly those that affect pediatrics? It's a really important distinction because per U.S. regulation, the pediatric population is considered vulnerable. And so what that means is to enroll them in a clinical trial, there has to be the possibility of benefit. Now, what happens with some of these diseases is that Unfortunately, sometimes these kids don't grow up to a very old age, and when they do, they might not have that tolerable risk-benefit profile in that where their disease has gone, there might not really be a prospective benefit at this point. So it's really all risk. And I mention this because what FDA will typically insist on is get your adult data and then get your pediatric data. But that just might not be ethical. And I know we've used that word a number of times. It's it's really important in that space. So here again, much like randomized controlled trials or the absence thereof, FDA just wants that justification. I don't think they're going to tell you it's okay. You need to show them that it's okay. And most importantly, that it just wouldn't be ethical to enroll, whether it's older pediatrics or adults who just do not have that possibility of benefit, it's just not going to be acceptable to enroll them solely to get maybe a little bit of safety data. Yeah. And I think it's a really important theme that we talk about throughout this podcast is ethics. And I'm glad you you brought that back up. But it's also sometimes not possible, physically possible to have an adult population before you enter pediatric development, because sometimes the life expectancy is just some of these children really sadly don't make it to adulthood. So to have adult data is either going to be uh, not representative of your patient population because they don't make it to adulthood or, you know, kind of irrelevant in that respect. So, as you said, I think it's more a case of demonstrating to FDA, justifying to FDA and any other regulatory authority that you're you're looking to, to go for, for authorization in as to why you need to use the paediatrics because nobody wants to have to use them. But sometimes it's just it is a case of there is no other choice. Kids need medicines too. Um, And I think most importantly, you don't want to go to the FDA with an IND and a clinical protocol that says we're jumping right into five-year-olds. This is really emphasizing the criticality of some of these early phase meetings, your interact meetings, and your pre-IND meetings. Getting this on the table as early as possible, trying to gain as much concurrence and de-risk that future IND application. Yeah, and I guess that this definitely is a, a topic of conversation for another podcast, I know, but um, thinking about different meetings and interactions with FDA. Before we move on, are there any general thoughts that you have around um, the use of those meetings for specifically rare disease development? Really just as early and as often as possible. You don't want to be at your end of phase one meeting still thinking about your efficacy endpoints. This is something that the FDA is giving you multiple bites at the apple before you even submit your application. 
again, I think we could wax poetic about this for yeah. hours on end. <laughs> Every investigational development program is going to be different. So it's going to be tailored what you get in front of them, but just trying to get as much in front of them as early as possible to de-risk that application. And rare diseases are not going away anytime soon, and neither is the development of such. So um, I guess just in the last few minutes that we have, Eric, are there any comments or, or thoughts that you could make on the landscape moving forward? We know that rare diseases are, are going to continue to be an important area of development. Yeah, you talked about the RDEA pilot program. That's very important. Another one from FDA is the START, and that is the Support for Clinical Trials Advancing Rare Disease Therapeutics pilot program. Specifically with uh, CBER, really what you need here is a cell and gene therapy that's addressing an unmet need. And this is going to enable you to have additional life cycle development meetings with stakeholders from the Center for Biologics. And and any other sort of um, closing remarks or anything that you would like to make note of? I know we could sit here all day. It's such a fascinating topic and um, sure one that I'm confident that everybody listening in will will find fascinating as well. But is there any sort of final thoughts or remarks that you'd like to add? I just think we've seen the landscape shifting, whether it's the types of trials that FDA will accept as pivotal, the concept of accelerated approval for cell and gene therapies, which, as you noted, a lot of the rare diseases will Mm. necessitate these types of treatments. And CBER's leader, Peter Marks, being really receptive and I think forward thinking for the accelerated approval paradigm. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. So those are the types of things that I think I really like to see moving forward because it's it's being pragmatic. You're not going to be able to fit everything into a box of black and white regulations. You need to find some of the gray area, some of the nuance. And in all my recent interactions with FDA, some of the guidance documents they've put out, I definitely think that they see the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. Eric, it has been an absolute joy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. It's, I'm sure, as everyone listening in will agree, it's been fascinating and definitely something we could follow up in a, a future podcast as well. No, absolutely. I appreciate it. And it's been great being here and talking with you. Great. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Um, And make sure you're liking and subscribing the episode. If you enjoy it, please leave us a review. And we'll see you again soon for another episode of Conversations in Drug Development. Thank you for listening to Conversations in Drug Development, the podcast series brought to you by the team at Boyd's. Don't forget to follow us on the usual podcast platforms or visit our website to ensure you don't miss out on any of our future episodes.